Great. We're continuing in our I Relate series and looking at the way we're called to relate uh, to one another. It it all starts, if you remember, uh, with God's relationship to us that defines the way we are to relate to others. And so we've looked at marriage and parenting and singleness and journeying and so on over these last weeks, drawing from what we understand to be the God who lies at the heart of everything and trying to uh, uh, see how that educates, informs and teaches us about our own relationships. We're going to go back to front this morning and we're going to end up uh, with the way God relates to us. Because that above all informs the way that we are to relate to one another. And we're going to use those uh, verses in a moment from Matthew chapter 5 as a kicking off place. So uh, let's pray together. Father, really grateful to you that you have given us your word to help us understand who we are and how we should be. Grateful even more that you gave us yourself as a living, real example of uh, of how to live. That in the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the death ultimately and resurrection of Jesus, you called us into a radically, totally different way. Open the truth of that to us this morning. Not in a way that condemns us and overwhelms us but in a way that frees us and liberates us, in a way that releases us to become more of the people that you've called us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's a tragic day in so many uh, ways when we cannot escape the frailty, the brokenness, the anguish of life for so many in our world. It's hard to imagine, really, what our world is like. And so, with the benefit of our own uh, ability and the sheer random chance of being born in the right part of the world, we're able to largely protect ourselves from the ravages of war that are all around the globe. For some of us, though, the memories are are shocking and horrifying and we still talk to process them. For others of us, we just get glimpses, the war graves that line out endlessly in the distance. Just a piece of wood, but yet each a father, each a life cut short, a son, a husband, a wife, a a mother, a daughter, brother, sister, cousin, friend, a family member of one kind or another. Is there another way? Is there another kind of life that stops this kind of carnage? 2,000 years ago, the carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus himself, taught about a very different kind of way. A way so radical that by and large, it's not been tried and found wanting, but a way so radical that by and large, it has hardly been attempted even by those who call themselves by his name, Christians, ones of 
Christ. A way so revolutionary that only the might of heaven in our lives can make it possible. A love that crosses divides. Not just some, but all. A love that crosses divides in a world so broken and so disfigured, in a world so divided as our own. So Jesus told a story one day, and you'll know it well, I would imagine. It was a a very familiar scene that the people could understand and connect with easily and quickly. You see, there was this rough road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a road that many found themselves walking along. But either side of the road, and the same is true if you go there today, are steep rocky banks. And it was ideal for robbers and muggers to lie in wait and to ambush the wealthy travellers walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so Jesus tells an all-familiar story about one day there was such a guy and he was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and as it would so often happen, he too was ambushed and beaten and left by the side of the road. And then Jesus tells of the people that came by. First there was a priest and then a Levite, the priest, worked in the temple. He would work in the temple in Jerusalem and live in Jericho. Many of them did. And then there was a Levite. He was a helper in the church, the temple at Jer- in Jerusalem. And he too, as many of them did, would have lived in Jericho. So Jesus pictures this scene of the God people, busy in their temple worship, leaving the temple, leaving Sunday church, and making their way home. And as they leave and make their way home, they see this man lying on the side of the road. In fact, Jesus says that they deliberately, as they see him, cross over. They move to the other side of the road. That's a very sensible thing to do, isn't it? Don't get too close, something that might arouse your compassion, because you'll find it harder to walk on by. So to make it easier for themselves, these religious, godly people move to the other side of the road just to make sure they didn't see something too much, too much detail, just to make sure they weren't too close to find themselves, oh, how awkward to become emotionally tangled in the life of this man lying by the side of the road. No time to get involved. Their tea was on the table. Too risky to get involved. What if they were attacked too? Who would lead the service tomorrow if they were beaten and attacked? How godly they were in their response. So what about the dying man in this story that Jesus told? If a fellow Jew wouldn't stop, if a fellow Jew who took faith so seriously that he'd given his life to serve at the temple, if he wouldn't stop, who would stop? What kind of a world is this? As he tells this story, the religious crowd are feeling distinctly uncomfortable, wouldn't you imagine? They're not sure where the story is going, but they can't imagine that it's going to end well. Jesus then describes the most outrageously insulting set of circumstances. A Samaritan comes by. Even the sound of that name creates a tangible hostility in the crowd. 
They hated the Samaritans. It was a long-standing, deeply inbred ethnic conflict. Even if you didn't know the story, you can begin to guess how it ends. The Samaritan stops, tends the needs of the man, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the inn and pays with his cash to see this man restored. The story is powerful not because someone stopped. The story is not powerful because someone helped another person in need. The story is powerful because the person that stopped was the enemy. The deep-rooted hatred and bitterness between two peoples. The conflicts of Northern Ireland, of Rwanda, Serbia, Croatia, Kosovo. Jews, Samaritans. The power in the story is that it was the enemy that risked everything to help the man. The enemy that went close enough that his compassion might be aroused, that his emotions would be stirred. The enemy that bandaged his wounds and anointed him with his own oil and offered him his own wine. The power of the story is not about love for another. It's about love for somebody that your family, that the world that circumstances, that situations, whatever the reason or the background, the story is about a love for someone that you have been taught to hate. And we've all been taught to carry prejudices of one kind or another. Jesus tells this most shocking story of someone, the most unlikely person, who was willing to step above the trenches of his own prejudice, who was willing to walk into no man's land to the other side, motivated by something much deeper and more transcendent than gender or race or background or colour or language. So it's no surprise, is it, that when Jesus begins to teach the people He picks up this whole theme in Matthew chapter 5 about how we're to love our neighbour and not hate our enemy. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Ouch. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? This is loving across divides. A a love for those who do not reciprocate. A love for those who may even go out of their way to injure you or to hurt you. A love for those who hate you. A love that crosses divides. We sometimes feel good about ourselves for loving people that like us. Because sometimes we even find that hard. Jesus sets a completely different agenda. A different thing altogether to love someone while they hate you. So how do you respond when you're insulted and when you're ridiculed? How do you respond when you are hurt emotionally 
or physically by somebody else? How do you respond when your property is abused, you are burgled, or your car is broken into, or when someone robs you of finance or possessions or time, or when someone robs you of your peace? How do you respond when that peace is stolen and you are insulted and assaulted in that way? It's the very question that Jesus wants to address at the heart of this new way of living that he comes to bring in the Sermon on the Mount, as we know it. Verse 38, have your Bible open, uh, if you dare. You have heard that it was said, an eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Let's just pause there for a moment. Do not resist an an evil person. At first glance, It appears that these verses of Jesus are not just radical, but somewhat stupid and ill-founded. Should Christians really submit to anyone and everyone? Should we have uh, laid aside all our wills, desires, in the years 1939 following? Is this a call to a pacifism of every kind? No, I don't think so. There are many times in the Gospels when Jesus stands up quite forcibly against things that are wrong and evil. We need to understand the context. The the people that Jesus is speaking to, how they're they're absorbed and, uh, and brought up in the depths of teaching of the Old Testament. But they twisted it. And they were living out a very flawed life on the basis that it was what God had required. And this is what Jesus Uh, speaks to head on. The Old Testament law said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was what the Old Testament law said. But the Old Testament law, when it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was an instruction to judges when they were judging a case and not an instruction to individuals on how they should behave. And we can track that in Deuteronomy. Uh, we won't spend the time doing it this morning, but if you're interested in that, then I can show you that. And what the people had done, they'd taken a law that was given to judges, and they'd applied it to their ordinary personal lives. Now, the reason the Bible gave a law to judges, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was in order to stop what was common in Old Testament days. What was common in Old Testament days is that one member of your tribe was offended. So in order to put right the offense, you would take your whole tribe and you would smash the whole other tribe. Because that only seemed fair. So one offense led to a whole tribe being offended or abused or assaulted. And so, retaliation would continue to increase on either side. And in order to make sure that didn't happen, the Old Testament has a law that says, no, 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 when judges judge, the judgment must be in proportion to the crime. There must always be limits. There is always grace, even in the judgment that judges offer. The tragedy of what Jesus is saying is that this Old Testament law designed for judges the prevented escalating scales of punishment, was now being used by individuals in order to personally justify personal vendettas that led to bitterness, vengeance, malice, and hatred. 
So you do something to me, I have the right to do something back. That's not the teaching of the Old Testament. The teaching of the Old Testament for individuals is to love your neighbor as yourself. That first comes not from Jesus, but from that well-read book, Leviticus. That's the law for personal relationships. And they'd taken something and they twisted it. I mean, we'd never do this, would we? We'd never take something in the Bible and twist it slightly to our own personal ends. But this is what they'd done. Jesus is saying that the law of retaliation has no place in our individual relationships. The law of retaliation has no place in our individual relationships. That's the context of do not resist an evil person. It's a call not to hit back when someone hits you, not to gossip about those who gossip about you, not to be difficult towards those who make your life difficult. But on the contrary, he gives three examples. We must, in the face of being wrong, make even more effort to do what's right. The other cheek, your only cloak, the extra mile. That's the mark of loving across the divides. In Jesus' culture, the first one turned the other cheek, a slap was worse than a slap today. A slap today is pretty insulting, wouldn't you agree? Uh, uh, In their culture, it was exponentially worse to slap someone in the face. So the moment of truth arrives, says Jesus, someone has slapped you physically, metaphorically. Do you slap him back? slap her back? Do you scream at him or her? Do you kick them in the shins? Do you curse them under your breath? Or do you love them? And in loving them, take the risk that your other cheek is exposed. And we know the pain of that, don't we? To keep loving, knowing that it might mean I get hurt once more. The natural response is to strike back in retaliation or to flee. Radical love, love that crosses the divides, does neither, neither flight nor fear, but stays and loves again. This was as much a challenge to the disciples as it is is to us today in our revenge-oriented culture where Our bravado and our honor and having the last laugh runs deep within us. The next illustration is a little bit uh, uh, different about your cloak. You had two cloaks, very simple. You had an inner cloak and an outer cloak. Um, The inner cloak was a soft kind of fabric next to the skin. The outer garment was a loose fitting and served as a coat in the day and a warm blanket that you'd wrap around you at night. If you lost your outer garments because of the weather, you were in significant trouble. So important was the outer garment that it was protected by law. Apparently, when trading or bartering, you would hold on to the other person's outer garment as a sign of sealing uh, the deal. In fact, uh, you were unable to hold uh, someone's outer garment overnight. That was against the law. So the outer garment's so important. What's Jesus suggesting? If someone is so desperate enough to sue you for your outer garment, if someone is so desperate, then love them because that's what they need. Don't fight back. Use their desperation as an opportunity to love more fully. 
Offer him your cloak, which is of far more worth. The Romans used to compel citizens to carry supplies of food or baggage. This could happen at any time. You could be going about your daily business and one of the Roman soldiers could demand that you carry their supplies, their bags. It didn't matter whether they were heavy. It didn't matter whether you weren't going in that direction. It doesn't matter if you had something better to do. So they hated the Romans for it, as you might imagine. And the picture Jesus paints in this third example is suppose a Roman soldier grabs you by the scruff of the neck and pushes a heavy suitcase into your hand to carry and forces you to carry it while he walks along leisurely beside you, eating grapes and drinking cool water as you stumble and strain to carry the case. When you get to the end, Jesus says, of the obligatory mile, and it is perfectly within your right at the end of the mile to slam that suitcase on the ground with all the hope within inside you that something fragile inside it will break. When you get to that point, when everything rising in you wants to do this person harm and injury in whatever way you can get away with, Jesus says, at that point, go another mile. Go another mile. And we're already in many ways making my second point, which is the teaching of Jesus about loving across divides is the way to live that tears down hostility. I mean, what does it do? What does it do to someone when you begin to love them like that? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Sometimes even if our friends are hungry, we send them home. We've got a notice in our house that uh, all our guests bring us joy. Some by arriving... Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus is saying, if you live like this, you'll be tearing down hostility. You'll be tearing down things that divide. So I'm asking, are you building a wall today, or are you tearing it down? Paramedic, often called to scenes of fights and disturbances, reflects on his job. And he writes these words. You know how it goes. It starts with a little misunderstanding. It escalates when someone gets his feelings hurt and uses a little sarcastic comment. His sarcasm provokes a smart aleck response, which elicits a threat and then a challenge. Now the male bravado and honor gets going. Then comes the fists and the clubs and the knives and the gangs. The blood flows and the flesh tears. And when it's all over and people are lying in piles, they call us and we come and pick up the pieces. But it's always been thus, hasn't it? We're more sophisticated than the gangs and the knives, maybe. But in our respectable suburbia, our hostilities do not end in hand-to-hand combat. But what do our hostilities end? Perhaps in the cold war of detachment, distrust, alienation, bitterness, name-calling, mudslinging, separation, isolation. We don't fight with our fists. 
but we do a lot of damage sometimes. Jesus says the cycle of hostility must be stopped, the wall of hostility torn down, not built up. It's a call to be second mile lovers, even of our enemies. It's a call to take a blow, an insult, a slap, and choose not to return it. It's the call to absorb something that's unjust instead of inflicting it on another or somebody else. It's time to pull the plug on tit for tat. We say it to our kids, don't we? Uh, uh, They're shouting, it's not fair, I didn't do it. He started it. And then what do you say as a parent? Sorry? (laughs) Or will you finish it? With about as much sympathy as a two-foot beam. In your marriage, are you the one building the wall? Or are you the one taking it down? I'm not doing anything. Maybe doing nothing is building a wall. You know what we say sometimes? I haven't said a word. Which basically means I've communicated this so well I don't need to deal with that. You can build a wall without saying a word, can't you? You're building a wall, you take... In your other relationships, you're building a wall, you're taking it down. You're the first to say, I'm sorry, or the last. Will you be the first to climb down or never climb down at all? Whether you began it or not, whether it's your fault or not, whether it was deserved or not, will you take the responsibility of bringing it to an end? I'm pretty sure I've read this in church before, but it's worth reading again. Many of you will have read it. It's the story of uh, Corrie Tembum. And uh, she writes uh, a well-known book called The Hiding Place. She tells in her book how, as a Dutch Christian, she hid people away during the Second World War. Betrayed by double agents, or betrayed by double agents, she was imprisoned along with her sister Betsy. In the book, she tells of Betsy's fight for life, getting weaker and weaker, an eventual death. A, a terrible death she watched uh, her sister go through, through maltreatment and malnourishment. And then after the war, in the sequel, A Tramp for the Lord, she tells of her story after the war, taking around Germany a Christian message of love and forgiveness. I read from that book now. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat. Is there a whistle on the mic or something? It's not. Can I change to this? It it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown flat hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement where I'd just spoken. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland who defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. There were never any questions after the talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps, and in silence, they left the room. 
And that's when I saw him walking, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next I could see a blue uniform and a cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pockets rather than taking that hand. He would not remember me, of course, but I remembered him with a leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. I was a guard at Ravensbrook. But since then, I'd become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, his hand came out to me. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could this man simply erase her slow, terrible death by asking my forgiveness? It could not have been many seconds, but it seemed to me hours as he stood there with his hands held out. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition in that we must forgive those who have injured us. And she quotes from Matthew chapter 6, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I ran a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives despite the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, but an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You, Jesus, you supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang through our joined hands. Then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Romans 5, 5, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. I hope it's not presumptuous when I say we, but we can't live like that by ourselves. 
the frailty of humanity doesn't have the resources within its brokenness to love like that. Which is why if we're to capture the essence, the life of Jesus, which is why if we are to be the people that he is calling us to be, we need him to do things in us that only he can do. And that's why as we move towards the end of our time here this morning, this makes no sense. Maybe logically it makes some sense, but this makes no sense in our hearts and in our lives. Unless we understand two things. Number one, this is how God has loved us. A love that crosses all the divides. And unless we understand the second thing, that his love can be shed abroad, in our hearts, so that we too can love like this. You see, a love that crosses the divides is exactly what you and I have received. For God so loved the world. The word used, that John uses when he writes, is the word cosmos, from which we get our obvious English words. In their culture and context, it put particular emphasis on the darkness of the world, a world that was dark, a world that was caught up in itself, a world that could not save or rescue itself, a world that was broken and hurting and damaged, a world that was marred by war and sickness and pain, a world that was overwhelmed sometimes by grief and loss and bereavement. And the Bible says that God so loved that kind of world, that's our world, yours and mine, that he gave his one and only son. Not only did he love a world that was like that, but he loved a world that was like that because the world had turned its back on him. God so loved a world that had chosen not to love him back. God so loved a world that had chosen, instead of honoring him, to dishonor him. A world that had chosen to insult him, to abuse him, to run him down. God loved that kind of world. And if we think about our world, our world has not done that. Well, when God himself came, we nailed him to a cross just to highlight what we were really like. Did he retaliate? Did he strike back? No. At the moment when God could have abandoned us completely, and no one, if there was anyone to judge, could hardly have said at that point, hey God, that's not fair. He sends his one and only son to us. He carried our load. He left the glory of heaven. Lived life in grotty incognito. And carried our load all the way to a cross on a hill outside a city wall. And there he died, carrying my load and yours. Why? Because I said I'd loved him? Why? Because I promised him the world? Why? Because I, I said I'd live for it? No, 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 no. While I was his enemy, while you and I were far from him, while you and I were set in our own ways, he loved us still. You see, when Jesus talked about turning the other cheek, you can hardly say he doesn't know what he's talking about, can you? 
When Jesus says, go the second mile, you can hardly say he doesn't understand. His second mile took him from, <laughs> took him from uh, heaven to earth. The second mile took him from earth to a cross. When Jesus says, give away your cloak. The Bible says that he had a cloak of righteousness and he chose to give it away to you and to me. He knows what he's on about. And that's what makes the Christian story such a remarkable one. That's why it pales uh, all other stories of faith pale into insignificance to this God who knows what he's talking about. A God who's done what he now calls us to do. A God who can provide for us to live in a way that we could never live by ourselves. All done. All done. He's turned the other cheek in the most extraordinary manner. He's walked the second mile and he's given away his cloak. Are you building a wall of hostility? Or are you taking it down?